Oh, I love that question. I'm going to certainly draw some parallels from how we design our projects, but how we can certainly design our, our careers and our, our goals and ambitions around. Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. We interview women in the sports and entertainment businesses to teach you the tips and the mindset that will get you to the top faster. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Let's bring visibility to women who are crushing it in their roles. Join us week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. We will lead you forward because leadership is female. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast, Dina Prastos. We are so excited to have you. I want to have you introduce yourself to our audience. You are the first of your industry to be on the show, and I'm really excited to to learn from you. So I'll let you tell our audience who you are and what you do. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Uh, So I'm Dina Prastus. I am a waterfront architect based out of New York, and I founded a firm, Indigo River, that focuses on not only waterfront architecture, but the larger conversation around climate adaptation in our built environment. We have a team of about 20 individuals, and most are within the engineering architecture, naval architecture, landscape architecture, and planning realms. That's incredible. So how did you get there? Were you a little girl dreaming of this career path one day, or or how did you land um, at the top of this company, really changing what the landscape looks like on the water's edge? As a young girl, I certainly knew I wanted to become an architect, and I had a couple tangential paths that ultimately brought me back here. But I I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, which is a coastal city and on the waterfront. Um, And I left for college when I was 17. I came to the Northeast and I studied architecture undergrad. And then when I graduated, it was right around the time of 2007, 2008, there was kind of an economic downturn and the writing on the wall for the practice of architecture was grim. Um, And so I decided to reinvest in myself in a practical way. And I went back to school and I got a master's in civil engineering. And when I finished civil engineering, I had a confidence that I had developed in academia and, you know, on the, on a sheet of paper, working at a desk, but there were larger questions in my mind about the practicality and the logistics of, you know, how pieces physically go together, who the laborers are putting these structures together, what their conversations are. And so I, with that self-awareness went into the field and worked for a contractor um, for several years. And I worked on design builds and on waterfront projects, which is kind of which sparked the initial curiosity and interest and launched my experience within the waterfront realm of marine engineering, waterfront architecture. And I worked with that firm for about six years and worked internationally with them as well, was part of a leadership development program with them, got really great exposure. And at one point, um, when I was working internationally, I had accrued a lot of time. I came back and kind of stepped out of the industry altogether, got married. Um, took a bit of a sabbatical and launched complete tangent of a cooking school with my husband, which was great business experience, um, which business is kind of business is business applicable kind of in any realm in any vertical. Um, and then kind of got my senses and came back to engineering and architecture, uh, working then for a uh, design engineering firm and architecture firm until I got my license and ultimately uh, decided to launch Indigo River. Okay, so much to unpack there, um, especially that curveball about the cooking school. That was not 
on your uh, rap sheet that I got before the interview today. Um, but you're right, you know, business is business. But what is incredibly difficult is the teamwork piece and pulling everyone together. I think specifically in your line of work with architecture, civil engineering, contractors, like getting these enormous projects done. And as business is business, I think any advice that you have to land or have to lend on the topic of like teamwork and pulling a group of, of experts together to get a monumental project completed. You know, what can you tell our listeners about starting, moving through and completing those projects that seem, you know, almost too big to dream, but just crazy enough to endeavor? Sure, Emily. And what, one of the things that's kind of helped me, and I, I gave kind of the story of my career with a couple different milestones throughout it and sitting where I'm not at now, kind of the lessons that I've learned and what's helped me most is that I've I've kind of built up this empathy muscle and and this vocabulary and the ability to speak the language of different in the room and, and understand the motivations of different in, different individuals in the room. And so that can be the language of a contractor or the language of a regulator or the language of an owner, um, of an engineer, of an architect. And so the, the architect role in general is that of a generalist, that of a you know conductor of the symphony, you have a lot of different instruments, but kind of the the, the leader of the pack. And so um, architects often are kind of in this generalist scheme. And I diverted from that in the sense that I am a specialist architect. I still am an architect that kind of is in charge of many different realms, but within the waterfront. And so I'm speaking not just a, a civil engineering language, but a marine engineering language. And I'm speaking with contractors that are not general civil contractors, they're marine contractors. And so I think um, working up those muscles to understand the motivations and, and build the empathy around the individuals that you're working with, because at the end of the day, we are people building things and designing things, and those relationships are key. Um, and that kind of establishing a baseline understanding with the different parties um, really is is what helps. And speaking the same language and, and having flexed that muscle is, um, I think, what's helped me the most. Yeah, I, I love that empathy and speaking the same language, um, certainly intertwined, but your explanation was beautiful and one that is applicable, I think, no matter what industry we're in. You'd also talk touched on confidence. So how much has your self-confidence played into your success? I grew up as an athlete. And so that certainly was kind of a part of me that was developed early on in terms of, um, you know, I played soccer, going out on the field to perform, uh, putting the discipline in, practicing in advance, and then having, um, you know, the teamwork and the the motivation working toward the same goal. And so certainly that kind of confidence is developed naturally in that arena. And it um, absolutely transcends to other industries and other arenas as well. And so that's one piece that I think kind of early on was instilled in me to have that um, discipline and then kind of the, the reward piece of it that helps the momentum build. Um, the other piece of it, I think, not only self-confidence, but um, maybe that feeds into the self-confidence is kind of a self-awareness and self-reliance. Um, and so I would, I, I mentioned before, you know, I finished architecture, I went to engineering. Part of that was out of a self-awareness that I I felt like my technical chops could be stronger. And I felt like it was an area that I could improve and that certainly I had done well in architecture school and I could lean into my strength or I could round out a weakness. And that's also a very kind of um, typical mindset I find of athletes of, all right, my right foot is my, my dominant foot, but what is my left foot doing? And that's going to be my weakness. If someone attacks my left foot, that's kind of going to be the, the bottom line of what 
determines my trajectory as an athlete and my performance. And so I've taken that mentality into my career as well as, you know, I'm, I'm strong in some areas, that's great, but where am I not strong and where can I improve those aspects of my, um, you know, shortcomings or where can I augment and develop a team that can exhibit those strengths that I don't have naturally or, or can't develop or I'm struggling with. Um, so I think self-awareness is really important in determining that self-confidence as well as uh, self-reliance. And so I, I grew up in Alaska. I mentioned I went camping a lot. I think there's certainly a confidence that can can stem from um, knowing that you can rely on yourself in different circumstances when you go camping and, you know, you don't have a piece of gear and you have to become resourceful. Um, also kind of a natural way to develop confidence there. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so crucial. And I, I really liked your explanation about your decision to go back to or to continue your education. And I think that oftentimes we find ourselves in our career thinking, okay, do I do I continue on this path, on this trajectory or in this role or with this company, or do I go to school and round out that skill set or apply something new? So the way that you've thought about it is really interesting consideration for our audience is like, okay, you're really talented in this one area, but if you're looking to grow, you know, where else do you need to be sort of rounded out in your skill set? So, okay, let's talk a little bit about one of the most fascinating things that I, I had learned about you is that you are working on specifically waterfront architecture and sort of this futurist idea, like, tell us more about that. Like what, what does that vision look like to you? What are you dreaming about? What are you building in, in the way that our landscapes might be changing in the future? Sure. So I, again, afforded by the maybe diverse experience that I've had and diverse exposures, uh, do focus primarily and our firm focuses primarily on waterfront, which is not typical, certainly within architecture, um, perhaps more typical within engineering realms to have specialists and subspecialists of, you know, marine engineers and coastal engineers, uh, modeling engineers. And so there is a bit of a departure um, for architects to be focusing on this as a you know, geographic typology, not necessarily um, programmatic, meaning many architects, um, not all architects do everything. I mean, they're they're trained to do everything, but many focus their careers maybe on hospitals as a typology or on residential as a typology or museums and cultural institutions. And so um, that was more familiar to me and maybe a bit of a challenge early on in determining myself as a specialist in waterfront architecture, which wasn't something I saw before me. And so I, you know, took a leap of faith, but put a lot of work into developing this as a specialty. And the types of projects that we work on, we have, we work on a lot of different types of programs. We'll work on port projects or marina projects or, you know, coastal resiliency plans or waterfront revitalization programs. Um, but we, we look at them all through a lens of resiliency and climate adaptation, which is in a really, really important conversation to be having right now kind of at this moment in time as we're seeing, you know, weather patterns shift and be more extreme than even they were forecasted to be, let alone, you know, historical events were. Um, and so this is, yeah, very dynamic moment in time to be focusing not only on the climate, but kind of at one of our world's most vulnerable typologies, which is the waterfront. And so kind of focusing in on the challenging areas as I did with my career and my my background, my education, but also in, in terms of practice of this is 
Um, not something that's going away. We have sea level rise, we have flooding, we have more extreme weather events. And so focusing my career in, in a firm on this practice um, is really exhilarating and exciting, but it also opens the door not only uh, you know, for architects to be specialized in, in different geographic areas, not only programmatic areas, but it also lends itself well to looking at, you know, designing in different gravities and designing in space. And that's a conversation that we're having. I volunteer with the National Council of Architecture Registration Boards, which is the body, um, regulatory body that facilitates licensure in this country. And um, one of the things that we look at is how the role of the architect is changing and how it, you know, how it was historically and what the purview, what items fell under the architect and how it is now and kind of what the trajectory of that looks like. And so when we talk about space exploration, that is a hot topic today. And we look at, you know, three new international space stations being launched in the next seven years. Well, those are being designed now and who are they being designed by? And largely historically, the space conversation was around, um, you know, being designed for survival by engineers, not necessarily being designed by architects for individuals to thrive in. And so automatically by working on the waterfront, working with different natural forces than typically found upland um, or on landscapes, we kind of lend our skill set in that direction as well. Um, so beyond, you know, fixed architecture on a shoreline, we work on floating architecture and now even, you know, space architecture, which is really exciting to be at the fore of. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is mind blowing to think about. And one of the phrases that you said was, spaces for individuals to thrive. So what does that mean for us as people who are like not designing the space? Like where, where are we going to be living, working? Like how will we be experiencing our, our cities or our regions in the future? Yeah. So that's, I think one of the, um, interpretations or kind of understandings the public have of, you know, what an architect does versus what an engineer does. Um, and maybe as architects clarifying kind of what our role is and how we impact the public is helpful because uh, license are, are, architects are licensed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Um, and health and safety kind of overlap a lot with engineers. Things have to be designed to be safe and we have codes to kind of help us do that. Um, healthy and safe environments Architects focus a lot on not only, you know, physical health of a space of if you're a handicapped, how you access the space or whatnot, but also mental health that happens from a space and from being in a space and, and designing so that the, the mental health consequences can be those that are beneficial and not detrimental. Um, and then wellness and welfare is this whole conversation of how do you even define welfare and how that's always changing with, you know, societal values and reflecting the changing societal values. And so that's something that um, for instance, an example I give is if you look at a, a sporting stadium that was built in or designed maybe in the 40s, built in the 50s, and you look at the provisions for changing tables in those restrooms, and they're only in the women's room. And that's kind of a very tangible example of, well, when that was designed, when that was built, that's what reflected society's norms and values. And we look today at new stadiums built, and sure enough, changing rooms are going in the men's room as well. And so there are things that change over time. And there are guidelines and codes that also have to evolve and change. And so the architects can certainly help to update those codes and standards as well as get ahead of them and not only design to kind of the bare minimum requirement as, and I, I love engineers, but engineers are often designing to a code, to a design criteria and not 
not always thinking outside of the effects of those decisions of the minimum requirement for code. And so that's something that architects do. And when we talk about, you know, space architecture can look at, yeah, survival is obviously paramount, very important, not undermining that at all. But there is a difference when we design just to survive versus to thrive. And you think about the effects of an individual working in a confined space for an extended period of time, there's a lot of opportunity to help individuals, even through mental health um, efforts of acknowledging the different built constructs that can affect the individual's health for a prolonged period of time. So things like putting in a window, that they have some connectivity to the outside world um, is kind of, you know, groundbreaking. The, the International Space Station, that was an afterthought to even put in a window. It wasn't, you know, designed by an architect. And part of that, I think there's opportunity for just the way that architects think. Um, so certainly thriving kind of, I would put in the category of not only physical health, but mental health and the large conversation of welfare. Yeah. What are some things that we can do in our spaces or in our offices um, to take some of the, some of what you're maybe implementing in like a new building and update our spaces so that we can thrive um, or have a better experience in, in our workplaces? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, and to, frankly, I don't work that much on buildings except for through a resiliency lens of like flood protection and flood mitigation. Right. Um, but certainly, you know, making sure the building is safe and that even in, in extreme circumstances and extreme weather events, the building is maintained and safe and operable. Um, but beyond that, you know, on the day-to-day -day of not the extreme circumstance, certainly having natural air and natural light um, can go so far. You've seen hospital studies of when a patient has a window versus when they don't, or when they have connectivity to other individuals versus when they don't, and what their uh, their rates are for recovery. And there are, you know, black and white differences as to one is clearly more beneficial than the other. And so there are data sets that we're learning, and certainly with the emergence of AI and um, kind of different technologies, we're able to point more articulately to some of these studies and wrap their results into future designs. If you are listening to this podcast, I know you are a busy professional. We can agree we are always looking for products that are convenient and make life easier. Mobot water bottles are one of these products. It's a water bottle and a foam roller in one. I use the water bottle at the gym, staying hydrated in boot camp and then flipping the bottle on its side at the end of class to quickly foam roll my legs. It helps with recovery and gets me back to work faster. Get yours at mobot.com and use the code leadershipisfemale, all one word, to get 15% off. Support Lonnie Cooper, the female founder of this product, and support yourself. This is a must-have wellness water bottle. It's a new year, and I want to welcome a new sponsor to the Leadership is Female podcast, Staffy, that's S-T-A-F-I, and they can be found at GetStaffy.com. We are all busy professionals, and we have a lot on our plate, and GetStaffy is here to help. They are a virtual assistant company. They're virtual assistants, legal assistants, receptionists, intake client specialists, sales representatives, and paralegals are thoroughly trained and effectively can manage multiple tasks from answering customer inquiries to booking your family activities and managing your calendar and appointments. Plus, you get to save costs with our easy subscription-based service. That's getstaffy.com or reach out to me 
at Emily Jansen on Instagram, and I will connect you directly to their people. They are a phenomenal company, and we've got an interview with their CEO on the podcast. If you need help, if your company needs help, if you need a virtual assistant that can help save costs and get more done, Get Staffy is the way to do it. GetStaffy.com and mention Leadership is Female or let me know and I will put you in touch. Let's go. Do you need a keynote speaker for your next conference, ERG meeting, event, or group? I'm here, raising my hand. I help leaders grow their confidence so that they can lead more intentional, goal-directed, fulfilled, and happy lives. We are conditioned from our childhood to stay small. Don't be conceited. Run in the middle of the pack because if we speak out too much or shine too brightly, we will offend other people. This could not be more wrong. When you are your best, most confident leader, you give others permission to shine too. So how do we get there? How do we increase our confidence? I love sharing my best practices and proven methods to help leaders grow into who they are meant to be. Your most confident, authentic self, ready to take on your next biggest challenge in the office and in your personal life. Get in touch at emilyjansen.com. Yeah, that's fantastic advice and something to consider, right? Like looking around your space and do you have natural light, right? Like, do you have access, easy access to go outside and get some fresh air? You know, that is also so, so important. So when you take on a new project, what is your... What is your approach and how could those steps maybe be translated into, um, you know, someone is, has set a goal for 2024. Like I'm sure you have lots of goals for 2024. What is your approach for tackling those big goals, those big projects that can ensure that, that you are successful, or at least you find a result um, that's putting you on, on the path you're meant to be? Oh, I love that question. I'm going to certainly draw some parallels from how we design our projects, but how we can certainly design our our careers and our our goals and ambitions around. Um, I mean, on on the project level, typically we will start with kind of a due diligence assessment of, you know, the the site of, um, you know, where we're looking to make improvements. Um, and so that can be just, you know, vulnerable vulnerability assessment where, where there are vulnerabilities and these things are all, um, metaphorical as well as literal and and figurative as well as literal. And so, you know, due diligence analysis, vulnerability analysis, um, kind of get the lay of the land before establishing a design criteria of, you know, what are the goals? What goals are you setting? What are the specific metrics you're looking to achieve? Um, So we do this, you know, in the built world, in the physical realm of we want to design a flood wall to be protective against a, you know, level three hurricane or a, you know, sea level rise that's projected for the year 2050. Um, But you can do that on an individual level as well of I want to achieve X milestone in this amount of time. And you kind of you set those goals and then you figure out how to work backwards toward them and maybe have a set schedule or a set budget. Um, But those are kind of the, the early broad strokes um, decisions has to do with, you know, awarenesses around vulnerabilities for the due diligence piece has to do with, you know, realistic goals and targets and metrics, and then lay the foundation to begin working toward those goals. I love that. It's, I can draw all those parallels between <laughs> like due diligence and vulnerabilities. Like what could stand in your way from reaching your goal? If you can identify yeah. those early, then you're not going to be surprised when you hit those pitfalls um, yeah. along the path. 
And also obviously the metrics, the metrics are so important. Like what are those KPIs that are going to let you know that you are making progress? I love it. I love it. Okay. So what has been the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome in your career and how did you do it? And what did you learn? So I think two, two things stand out to me, one kind of earlier in my career and one, um, a little bit later and pivotal in my career. And so early in my career, I think it was developing maybe the confidence, um, but really speaking up, um, not waiting to be offered an opportunity, not waiting to be recognized. Um, I thought naively my work would speak for itself, not the case in corporate America, not the case in male dominated industries um, required that I be a little bit more assertive and identify and and recommend myself for opportunities. And so that I, I entered a leadership development by kind of raising my hand and saying, all right, what else? Um, and why not me? Um, and then also even, you know, working internationally, it was something that I identified I wanted to do early in my career and put myself out there to be able to do. And so those, um, you know, just learning, to, learning how to articulate and to, to speak up, um, and to define clearly what I wanted and to share that and communicate that helped me very early on. And then later in my career, I, I got to a point where I had worked in, you know, construction, engineering, cooking school, <laughs> architecture, um, and I was looking to amplify my early specialties within waterfront architecture and there weren't any firms that were doing that and I felt like any way I was any direction I was stepping I was compromising something that was important to me whether it was um, you know only focusing on architecture or only focusing on engineering or only focusing on construction but not being able to do all three and not being able to do them with a focus on the waterfront at the same time and so that um, you know not seeing it but having the confidence to create it um, is what launched Indigo River. And seven years later, we're here with 20 people and continuing to grow and work on some phenomenal projects. That is fantastic. How do you, you know, you grew your team to 20. What did that process look like? Was it, were you filling a need as they arose with adding team members or, or, or were you taking the approach of, okay, I think we're going to be growing into this space. Let's hire and then grow. A combination of, and in in many cases, uh, individuals who we had worked with in the past, that it wasn't kind of a blind hire or blind job posting. It was an individual that we had established a working relationship. We understood each other's strengths. We saw opportunities to help each other grow and help a company grow. Um, And so that was kind of much of our early growth. And even some of our growth now are um, connections that we've established. Sometimes it's, you know, a a client that wants to come and work on our team later in their career, or it's someone who we worked with, you know, opposite the table five years ago, and they're, they're looking and they're aligned with our mission of what we're doing. Um, In terms of markets and industries, we, we started with, you know, two people and then four and eight, and we kind of doubled every year. And we, new and we know kind of what the opportunities are, where the funding is. We do a lot of government work, a lot of public work. And so um, keeping a tab on, you know, what the government is funding. We're very active within offshore wind, within green energy. Um, You know, 20 years ago, that may not have been the conversation and that may not have been the correct strategy for that time. And so part of it is kind of an awareness as to the larger um, economy, as well as the climate, um, pun intended. Um, And so just kind of keeping a tabs on that, keeping recurring relationships open um, for continued work and growing our team rather organically, but with, you know, 
a, a larger view of the directionality of where we want to grow into. Yeah, that's smart. And you know, when you're not working, when you're not running this company, what are you doing? You're in New York and we talked about your offices right down the street from Peloton Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are you doing when you're not uh, when you're not changing the uh, waterfront landscapes and, and working with all these people in the city? Uh, so you you touched on it already. Certainly, I try and balance some of the mental stimulation with the physical exertion. I was an athlete before, certainly on a recurring basis, as much as I can make my daily habit to exercise and get my heart rate up, um, whether it's cycling or yoga or getting out in nature. I love to go hiking. I love to paddleboard. I live on the Hudson, so I go paddleboarding as often as I can, weather permitting. Um, and then beyond that kind of traveling, I love to experience new cultures and uh, connect with family. My family's spread out, as I mentioned, I'm from Alaska, so I don't really have much family um, in the immediate area. So whether traveling around this country or internationally, I really do enjoy and appreciate traveling. I love that. So what is it like being a girl from Alaska while living in New York City? Uh, it took some adjustment. I think there's something to be said for uh, growing up in a part of the country, which, you know, one of the last states and young comparatively and looking at, you know, New York City in the Northeast and uh, both in terms of, you know, the the people, the public, the economy, the society, the um, the built infrastructure. And so, I mean, Alaska was formed as a state in 1958 and much of the downtown Anchorage, you know, population less than 300,000 people was built um, you know, after 64, there was a large earthquake. And so the, the city of Anchorage is a very young city um, compared to New York or looking, you know, internationally at cities that are, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of years old. Uh, so it's quite the contrast. And I mixed in with that uh, a stint in the Middle East where I worked. And so, yeah, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different um, societies to work within and understand how they operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can definitely feel that. I'm from Chicago, live in Nevada now. Um, and it, it's just, it's younger on the West coast. Right. And then we traveled to Italy this summer and then that just, you know, blows your mind. Like you feel like an infant compared to the rest of the globe. Absolutely. Yeah. It's nice to put things in perspective. It is a hundred percent. Okay. So let's do the final four. What is your best piece of advice for women today? So they can level up tomorrow. All right. So I'm going to make an example out of this question. I think one of my best, one of my pieces of advice is to not be afraid to reframe the question or reframe the parameters. And so in that question, it's implied that you need to wait until tomorrow. Um, I don't agree with that. I think level up today, baptism by fire, jump in at the deep end. Even if you fail, you're going to learn a tremendous amount more and more quickly and be successful more quickly than if you wait until tomorrow, wait until you're ready, wait until it's perfect. Um, So I think just Nike, just do it. <laughs> yes. Uh, don't be afraid to reframe the question was like the first layer of advice <laughs> there. Right. And then yeah. second, start today. Don't yeah. wait. It's yeah. never going to be perfect. Um, if you don't start now, you might never start. So get, Absolutely. get out. Okay. Where are you traveling to next? Uh, so next month, my husband and I are traveling. We're actually, we're going on a little road trip in our electric vehicle down from, from New York to the Carolinas. Um, so we're going to go explore a part of the country that neither of us have really spent a lot of time. And um, we do have a, a bit of work there. And so kind of ex- expanding our understanding of the area and getting to know a different state. Nice. What is your pump up song? Ooh, uh, 
I mean, anything by Beyonce, but uh, no, I'll say Empire State of Mind by Alicia Keys and Jay-Z just uh, kind of demonstrates the confidence of a, a hope in a city in, you know, New York and very much captures the American dream and also what it feels like to run a startup. <laughs> and what is your favorite quote? Uh, so something I read earlier in my career, probably, you know, soon after it came out 10 or 15 years ago, um, you know, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, one of the things she says is, you know, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, don't ask what seat, just get on. Um, and I very much believe in that mentality of if you know the direction you want to go and someone is going and there's an alignment, jump in, don't ask exactly what your role is going to be or try and overdefine. Um, but just, you know, broad strokes decisions early on can go a long way. Yeah. And I think that plays into your advice too. Like just do it. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. Well, Dina, this has been such a fun conversation. So many leaderful moments in our, in our talk that uh, I know will help so many of our listeners. So thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for having me, Emily. Where can we follow along with you and your career? Uh, so certainly I'm I'm active on, on social media, whether on LinkedIn or on Instagram, just my name, Dina Prastos. Um, also the firm Indigo River. And uh, we have a website, indigoriver.com. Amazing. All right. Thank you. And we'll look forward to following your undoubtedly successful career. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Time is your most precious resource, and it means the world that you spent it with us. Please help us reach more people who need to hear these interviews by hitting the subscribe button and the five-star rating on your iPhone. Do you know someone who could benefit from this interview? Please share it. Take a screenshot and post your Instagram stories, copy the link and share on LinkedIn, or text that link to your colleague. The Leadership is Female podcast exists to showcase female leadership in sports and entertainment and give you the tips to level up. We will extend a hand back to lead you forward. Extend the same hand by sharing this with someone who needs to hear it. One last thing. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at leadershipisfemale. Now, take this lesson and run. Let's go. Let's go.